Turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to the book of Psalms and Psalm 61. Psalm 61. And if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and read along silently with me as I read aloud Psalm 61, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Father, we come before you asking you to add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your holy word. Uh, Excited to be in your presence, excited to be among the family of God on this Lord's day, and uh, excited as your servant to be found weak, for it's in times of weakness where you are strong. I pray, Lord, that you would preach your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you're probably already aware, we are in a series in the book of Psalms. We're planning on spending the next several weeks in the Psalms, and I think this is a first for us. I don't think our church family has ever spent this much focused time and attention in this particular book. So I'm looking forward to what the Lord does among us uh, in the coming weeks. In the original Hebrew, the book of the Psalms is literally called Book of Praises. This was quite literally the songbook of Israel, inspired by God to be sung back to him. I want to read you a little bit of a lengthy quote by Don Whitney. He says this about the Psalms. It's as if God said to his people, I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. I want you to praise me not because I'm an egomaniac, but because you will praise that which you prize the most. And there is nothing of greater worth to you than I. There is nothing more praiseworthy than I. And it is a blessing for you to know that. It will lead to your eternal joy if you praise me above all others and above all else and to your eternal misery if you do not. But there's a problem. You don't know how to praise me, at least not in a way that's fully true and pleasing to me. In fact, you know nothing about me unless I reveal it to you, for I am invisible to you. Therefore, since I want you to praise me and it is good for you to praise me, But since you don't know how to praise me, here are the words I want you to use. That's Don Whitney thinking about what perhaps would be on the mind of our Lord as he gives us the Psalms, the songbook of God's people, words that we can sing to the Lord, words that we can pray to the Lord. Because the Psalms are unique in that they were given to us so we could give them back to God. There's not a single other book in the Bible like that. God gave us the Psalms so we can give them back 
to God. But here's the thing. While God desires to be praised and is certainly worthy of our praise and deserves to be praised rightly and according to his word, you need to know this. Not every psalm is a psalm of praise. Not every psalm is a psalm of praise. Some are what we call imprecatory psalms, invoking judgment or calamity on people. Last week you looked at Psalm 3, part of which praises God for, praise, for breaking the teeth of the wicked. Kind of awesome. But not every psalm is a psalm that is a psalm of praise. Some are wisdom psalms. Other psalms are for special occasions. There's psalms that are specifically for pilgrims walking to the temple in Jerusalem. Psalms specifically for weddings, stuff like that. Some are royal psalms, long live the king. And some that we're looking at today and throughout this series are psalms of lament. Psalms where the psalmist basically says, it kind of stinks to be me. The more time you spend in the psalms, the more you'll find it uncanny how what you're reading expresses something that is looking for expression in your heart. The more time you spend focused in the Psalms, friends, it's unbelievable how you can come across something that has been penned thousands of years ago that can accurately reflect something that's on your heart today. God gave us the Psalms so that we could give them back to God. And 53 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament. 35%. Of the Psalms. That's a lot. 35% of the Psalms that are in the Songbook of Israel are Psalms of Lament. And as I was reflecting on this and preparing for the sermon, I kind of wondered why that is. That's a huge chunk of the Psalms. I started to wonder if maybe on average 35% of my life is lamentable. Life's hard, right? I wondered if on average, perhaps I'll spend 35% of my life feeling like I need to lament. Spend a good chunk of my days feeling like I don't know what to do. Maybe that's the case for you as well. Maybe that's why God, in his kindness, has given us so much to reflect upon. To instruct us and help us to cry out to God in times of distress, in times of lament. God gave us the Psalms so we can give them back to God. And these are the types of Psalms we're spending our time in. Psalms of lament. Now, our text today is Psalm 61. Now, it's not always easy from the text to decipher exactly what was going on in the psalmist's life at the time the psalm was penned. Sometimes you can connect the dots by, you know, uh, uh, dating methods, but it's, it's, it's hard to know for sure. This is one of those psalms that is hard to know for sure. We don't know exactly what was going on in David's life when he penned this psalm. But there's reason to believe that perhaps they are uh, in connection with the events that we read about in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And we don't have time to go there today, but I'm going to sum them up really fast for you right now. And uh, I spent time looking at them in prep. You may want to spend time looking at them to give another example of what it was like for someone to just be unbelievably sad, unbelievably sorrowful. So if you look in 2 Samuel 15 and following, what you'll do is you'll see uh, a story, an account of David's son named Absalom. And Absalom, uh, what he was doing at the time was stealing, if you will, or redirecting the favor of God's people away from King David and towards himself. 
He would say things like, well, you know what, if I were king, here's what I would do. If I was, if I was king, I would hear, everybody would have a hearing, and this would be just, and this would be fair, and this would be right. And over time, people would hear that and become starry-eyed for Absalom. And the people's favor, only temporarily, kind of shifted from David to Absalom. And Absalom was stealing the favor of the people from his very own father, the king, David. Now, this is only temporary, uh, but it does drive him away from the throne temporarily. And then later on, what ends up happening is the people no longer are favorable towards Absalom, but they do come back to David. And now, in my opinion, they're like extra loyal to David because they see the error of their ways. They see what has happened with Absalom, which means they're extra loyal to David and they really don't like them some Absalom. So when David sends his people into battle, he tells the leaders, Joab was one of them, and he says, listen, if you are to come across Absalom, be gentle with him. Be gentle with him. AKA, don't kill Absalom. That would be like not gentle. Be gentle with him if you come across Absalom. So they go to war. David stays behind. The battle ensues. Bottom line, David's army wins. Now Absalom is riding an animal, a mule, a donkey or something. And he happens to pass by, only in the Bible, he happens to pass by a large oak tree. And somehow his head gets stuck in this oak tree and his animal, loyal steed that it is, rides on. And he is like literally hanging out. Like he's hanging from this oak tree, just hanging there, unable to to remove himself. And one of the leaders of the army come back and tells Joab, check out what happened to Absalom. (laughs) Just hanging from this tree. And Joab looks at him and says, why wouldn't you just kill him when you had the chance? I would have given you cash money to kill him. Why don't you just take him out? And he says, well, I'm not going to touch the king's son. You remember what David said. And Joab basically says, you know what? Forget you. Goes over to Absalom, takes three javelins, thrusts them into the heart of Absalom. Ten other people come by, take Absalom down, finish the job, do him in, bury him under a pile of rocks. So the message gets to David. We have good news and we have bad news. Good news is we won the battle. And David's a king, but he's also a dad. Happy Father's Day. His response is, what about Absalom? David learns at the time that he's dead and he's overwhelmed with grief. Why? Well, because parents shouldn't have to bury their kids. It's one of the hardest things living on this side of heaven is when a parent has to bury a child at any age, at any time, from womb to tomb. When parents bury children, that's unbelievably hard. That's some of the hardest funerals or memorial services to attend. The question here as we look upon this psalm is not have you ever been in David's shoes? Really? Have you ever been a king and your son conspired against you? Of course not. You just say no and you move on. That's not the question here. The question is have you ever been overwhelmed with life circumstances? Have you ever been overwhelmed 
with the circumstances that have befallen you. Listen, when it comes to Bible study, careful Bible study, context is king. We want to know the context of the verse. We want to know what was going on at the time it was penned. What was going on for the original audience for which it was intended. When it comes to the Psalms and it comes to prayers, context matters, but in a sense it kind of doesn't. And here's why. If this was a hermeneutics lesson, we could look at how to study the Psalms and how to understand more about the Psalms themselves and how they were penned and then context would matter. When it comes to you praying the Psalms back to God, context really doesn't matter. Let me see if I can give an example. If I right now say, Lord, if I say, let's all bow our heads in a word of prayer, and I say, Lord, we need wisdom. And you say, yes, we do. What do we need wisdom for? Well, I need wisdom because I'm considering a decision that we're going to make at the Fort Thomas campus of our church. You need wisdom because you're going through something with your family. And you need wisdom because you're going through something financially related. You need wisdom because you don't know how to witness to the unsaved neighbor. You need wisdom because you don't know what to do about that coworker. You need wisdom because you don't know how to, how to handle this, this other circumstance. You need wisdom because your in-laws are coming over and you don't really like them. You need wisdom because someone else is going to be entering into your life and you don't even, you're not even ready for them. And you need wisdom because you're going through a, a, a different trial. But what do you all say when I say we need wisdom? You say, Amen. Does context matter? No. The context of my cry out to God is I need wisdom because I'm about to make an important decision for our church. But you can still relate with me and say, yes, we need wisdom. So the question isn't, do we get so buried into the details of what may have been going on in David's life when he penned the psalm? The question is this, can you relate to David in the sense that you've ever been overwhelmed? You've ever been overwhelmed with life circumstances? Because that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Have you ever felt huge waves of trouble just wash over you, over you again and again? And you're like, I just can't. I can't. I'm done. I don't know what to do. I don't think I can handle it. And then right again, right then and there, another wave comes in. And another wave of bad news. And then another surprise. And another expense. And another medical issue. And another form of bad news. And then you get that bill. Have you ever been overwhelmed? What does that look like for you? Our family was recently at uh, the beach with... <clears throat> excuse me, with some of our extended family. Thanks to, and we had a great time. I love the beach. Love the beach. Been living here 11 years. The only thing I'm still not used to is living in a landlocked state. I love the beach. Miss the beach. So it's great to get back there. Um, in the 1970s, there was a thriller movie. You may have heard of it. Changed the way we look at beaches like forever. Now everybody is scared of one thing when they go to the beach. They're scared of being attacked by a... Right. Do you know how many people in this nation are killed by sharks every year? One or less. <laughs> one or less. Let me help you figure that out. That means one or zero. Because less than one is like zero. One or less. 
But we're all scared of shark attacks. We're all scared of that. And now we're all aware, like some little sand shark bit the toe of a seven-year-old in ankle-deep water. Shark attack. And now we all know about every shark attack thanks to social media. And we say, there's more sharks. They're just coming at us like they're breeding like rabbits. They're out to get us. They've got big teeth. They're going to come and just attack us. When in reality, there's no more shark attacks than there ever was. We're just more aware of them. Do Do you understand that? More aware of them. You know what about, I think it's 85% of beach rescues are due to? What's the cause of them? Why are lifeguards running into the water? Not sharks. Riptide. Rip current. And a rip current is a, is a, a current of water that even though the waves are going to the shore, there's a current of water that's going away from the shore. And you can actually see it. If you know what you're looking for, slight discoloration in the water, you'll see the white caps of the waves rolling in. But then just if you, if you look carefully, they're not rolling in this one area just as much. And right then, technically, water is going back out. It's going out to sea. And if you're caught in a rip current, you could be moved fairly. You won't get pulled under. It's not some whirlpool, too, too much Hollywood. You, you won't get pulled under, but you will get pulled out pretty quickly. You go pulled out maybe 100, 125 yards in, in pretty short order. And you'll be out and then you will all of a sudden turn around and notice, wow, the land is far. The people I'm at the beach with are really tiny. And you're out there and your first inclination is to do what? Swim back to shore. What's the one thing you can't do in a rip current? Swim back to shore because the current is moving against you. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much energy you exert, you're never going to swim against this current. It's just not going to happen. I don't care how good a swimmer you are. I don't care how how old or young you are or how experienced you are. An Olympics, Michael Phelps is not going to swim against this current. And so you're out there and you know what you start to do? You start to what? To panic. And you start to feel overwhelmed. Because you've been pulled out. You can hardly see land. What land you can see seems very far away. And every effort you're making to try to save yourself is just not working. Panic ensues. You only have so much energy. Have you ever felt like this in life? Have you ever been overwhelmed? God gave us the Psalms so that we can give them back to God. We know what it's like to be overwhelmed. We know what it's like to have the wind knocked out of us by any number of circumstances. And therefore, Psalm 61 is most definitely for you and for me. So here's what I want to call to our attention today in the time that we have remaining. We need to reject the lie That we can ever be too overwhelmed to cry out to God. We need to reject the lie that we can ever find ourselves in a situation where we're too overwhelmed to cry out to God. Listen, I don't doubt we can feel that way. How many of you have ever felt, show of hands, I'm too overwhelmed to cry out to God? 
We can sometimes feel that way. It's hard to cry out to God when we're overwhelmed. It's hard because we have so much going on and so many things are vying for our attention. I'm not denying the feeling, not denying the symptoms. I am saying we need to reject the lie. I am saying we need to not follow our feelings and not believe the lie that we can ever be too overwhelmed to cry out to God. Because if you look at Psalm 61, look at the, the situation David finds himself in. Look at verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, O listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Uh, that word faint means over, it, it means overwhelmed. It's a, it's a Hebrew word meaning to, to turn aside, to, to feel like you're enveloped, but then to turn aside, to cover oneself. How many times do we feel like in life we just want to roll over? Things are happening in our lives and we just feel like we're overwhelmed. And you can see David, he feels like he's at the end of the earth. Or the illustration that I painted for you, he's been swept out to sea. He can hardly see safety and he just wants to roll over. We need to reject the lie that we can ever be too overwhelmed to cry out to God. I ought not cry out to God today. I'm too overwhelmed. There's other things I should do. There's other things that would be more worthy of my attention. Friends, we need to reject that lie. I need to swim and get myself back. I've got to, I can't swim. Here's the thing with riptides. Here's the thing with rip currents. If you're going to want to swim to safety, do you know how you can do that? You have to do something that's counterintuitive. Everything in you tells you, get back. Everything in you tells you, swim, get back. You're going out to sea, so you swim straight back. But you know what? There's help right here and right here. Because if you just swim parallel to the shore, which feels very odd because you're trying to get back to the shore. But if you swim parallel to the shore, you're then out of the rip current. And then you can, in fact, swim back to shore. But if you're going to refuse to do that, and you say, no, I just got to go back. I just got to go back. There's help right here and right here. Just got to go back. Just got to go back. That's what it's like when we refuse to cry out to God and we're overwhelmed. I, I know I, can, I can't. I can't, I can't, I've got to do, I've got to fix, I've got to do something. But if we keep doing that, it just leads to our demise. Because we cramp up and die. We need to reject the lie that we can ever be too overwhelmed to cry out to God. From the end of the earth, verse 2, David calls to the Lord when his heart is faint. See, here's the thing. We can feel far from God. We can feel far from God. Many times we say that. But here's the truth. God is never further or closer to you. That's not how he rolls. We do feel that way. I understand that. I'm just saying don't go with the feeling. We feel like we're far from God. Sometimes we feel like we're close to God. In reality, God is God. And he indwells his people. You're never far from God. I just feel so far away. Hey, hey, God's right here. Right here. When we cry out to him, we can be in safety. When we cry out to him in lament, we can feel relief. We can get the help that we need. You're never really far from God, even if you feel that way. We need to reject the idea that we're ever too overwhelmed to cry out to God. We read elsewhere in the Psalms. What's it? Psalm 139 where David says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. You're never far from God. And buying into the lie that we've drifted too far away and that there's other things that we can be doing will just have us paddling away, but to no avail. As I thought about this, as I prepared for this message, I thought, what lies do I believe when I feel I'm too overwhelmed to do the very thing, the only thing I can do when, when I'm overwhelmed? What's going on in my mind and my heart when I feel as if I'm too overwhelmed to cry out to God? Uh, maybe, we, maybe I need to think I need to get busy fixing something because I'm a fixer. So there's a problem, I've got to find a solution. Perhaps I think I need, to, I need to plan. My time would be better thinking through, okay, let's make a plan. Let's get out of this mess. Maybe I've become overwhelmed with guilt and condemnation, thinking I did something to get into this mess, so quite frankly, I deserve it. Or maybe we think God has already blessed us with a brain, and so I should use it to get out of this Mess. I don't know what we think, but friends, we need to reject the lie that we could ever be too overwhelmed to cry out to God and we would do better to do other things. See, here's a here, little, little trick I can teach you. When you feel like you're too overwhelmed to cry out to God, do you know what you can do? You can say to God, I'm too overwhelmed to cry out to you. you don't know what to pray, you can look to God and say, hey, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. Don't tell, but you're praying when you do that. You can get over that hump real easy if you could just look to God and tell him, I don't feel like praying. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And then you can pray to God the Father, but here's the thing. We just finished this series on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells you cries out on behalf for you. You don't have to get the words right. You don't have to get the things down. But the Holy Spirit cries out to you with groanings which are too deep to be uttered, too deep to be understood. So when you look to God and say, I don't feel like praying or know what to do. I don't know how to pray. Holy Spirit says, here's what she means when she says that. Here's what she really needs. You cry out to God the Father, the Holy Spirit's at work within you, saying what you really should be saying. And you have access to the Father because of Jesus Christ the Son. We got like Trinity action going on here. All of you just cry out to God and say, I don't know what to do. What a blessing it would be if that's what we would do when we're overwhelmed. What a blessing it would be is if instead of doing this when we were overwhelmed, that we would just step out of the current for a moment into safety and cry out to God like David does. What about you? Does desperation deaden your prayer life or drive you to your needs? When you're in a time of desperation, do you find that your prayer life is deadened or driven? James 5 verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him what? Let him pray. 
Psalm 102, verses 1 and following. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Look at verse 2, what David prays in Psalm 61 and verse 2. From the end of the earth I call to you and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He knows there's safety, but he needs to be led to it. And he knows that even when he gets to it, it's what? It's higher than him. It's not that just when he gets to it, he's like, oh, good, I can just get on this thing. He needs to be brought to it. He needs to be placed on it. He's looking to God. He's dependent on God for everything. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I was reading recently a book on William Wilberforce. And in there, he acknowledges the fact that he understood the gospel, saw his need for a savior, and saw the Savior, understood Jesus Christ quite a while before he actually came to Christ. He could see the rock that was higher than him, but he needed the Holy Spirit to do a work within him to get him on that rock, to bring him to the safety of salvation because he couldn't do it himself. That's what David here is saying. There's help here, there's safety there, but you gotta lead me there and take me there. It's higher than I. It's higher than I am. I can't scale it. I can't climb it. We're dependent on God for everything. Does desperation tend to deaden your prayer life or drive you to cry out to God? When you know where safety is and you say, that's too much, I can't. I could never get there. I can't do Does that drive you to say, Lord, help me? Or just to say, oh, I gotta do it. I gotta do it. In your outline, I put a question for you to consider. What lies, what lies do you believe that perhaps feed the temptation to pray less instead of more? And you'll notice in there it says, the more specific, the better. Spiritual growth and sanctification just loves specificity. We don't grow spiritually in fuzzy land, in ambiguity. If you're going to consider this question and think about it, what lies do I believe? Oh, friend, pray that the Lord would give you specific answers. Don't just stay in these vague generalities. Well, praying is good, so I believe that I should do something else which is not as good. Wow, really? That's not really get me out of bed in the morning. But if you think about, okay, instead of praying, what I want to do is I want to get busy fixing. And instead of uh, going to the Lord first and crying out to him when I'm overwhelmed, I feel like I've got to pick myself up from my bootstraps. That literally means I think the answer lies not within him but within me, which means that in essence I'm not looking to God for what I need. I'm looking to myself for what I need, which means that I have a higher view of me than I do of God. Wow. Now I have something I need to repent of. I need to repent of the lofty view that I have of myself and the low view I have of God. Pray that God would show you specifically. He'll do it, friends. He'll do it. Pray that he would show you specifically. Lord, if I'm being misled by a lie, show me specifically what that is so that I can put off things specifically. We need to reject the lie that we're too overwhelmed to cry out to God. And we also need to look at what else David does. Look at verse 3. He remembers the protection, the provision, the goodness, the faithfulness of God in the past. 
So try to see the flow of this sum. Ride it, okay? Feel that emotional roller coaster that it's on. Where in verses 1 and 2, there's just this, this panic, this overwhelm. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. Lead me to the rock. He's being overwhelmed. He's paddling. He's paddling. And then in verse 3, he says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. He's moving from, from, from panic to kind of pondering, right? He's moving from, from feeling overwhelmed to actually remembering, you know what? You have been. You have been a tower of refuge. You have been safety. You have been help to me. Let me dwell in your tent forever, he says in verse 4. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. And that Selah means let's stop, think about it. Stop, ponder, reflect. Think about it. So he starts out really overwhelmed. Then he starts to remember, wow, this is, God has done this before. And he he pauses, he ponders, he thinks about the times where God has been a tower to him, where God has been a, a place of refuge for him. David prays aloud and declares the truth that God has done this for him in the past. See, it's one thing for us to say, I know you can do this because you're God and you can do anything. That's That's true. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that. But friends, there's something different with you saying, I know you can do this because you're God and you've done this before. Precedent preaches, right? Precedent helps like, I know you can do this because God can do anything, but I know you can do this because you've done this before. And that's what David is saying here. He said, you've been a strong tower. You've been my place of refuge. I'm actually not asking for anything new. And he's reflecting on the fact that this is not new. This is not outside of the norm for God. God has done this before. And that's what our experiences do. Listen, our faith is not based on experiences, but our experiences help. Experiences can nurse our faith. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then the longer we walk with him, we see that he is so good, and that his word is so true, and that he really helps, he really cares, he really does love his children. And this is David. My goodness, how many times has David been persecuted by Saul and escaped? Miraculously. He remembers this and he's strengthened. Friends, how many times has God served you, helped you, given you strength, given you endurance when you just shouldn't have had it? How many times can you look back on your life and say, God has been good to me. God has helped me. He has been a place of refuge. He has been my help in times of trouble. And then you realize what you're crying out to God for is something that he has done before. And that encourages you. But you know what? Maybe you've not been walking with the Lord for quite a long time. Maybe you don't, you kind of come up empty handed when you answer, answer, when you ask that question. When has God been good to you? Uh, I can't really remember. When has God rescued you from a time of trouble? This is kind of my first, my first time since I've been a believer that this has happened. And that's why we should be so thankful for the word of God. Because long before I experience it, I can read about how God has helped his people throughout redemptive history over and over and over and over and over again. And there may not be precedent in your life, but there is precedent in the lives of God's people 
that you can read about and reflect upon and say, oh, wow, I may not have an experience to reflect upon, but I can reflect upon the experiences of those who have gone before me. Look at verse 5. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. I can read about those who fear God's name and how God has worked in their lives, how God has blessed them abundantly, how God has met them where they were and given them the help that they need. These experiences act as a nurse to our faith. That's why there's a selah after that portion. God would have a stop, pause, ponder, and think about it and be blessed instead of just, just reading on. And friends, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus Christ and you have trusted him and him alone for salvation, that experience of having been saved from the pit is always there for you to refer to, to remember the goodness of our God. And amen would fit in perfectly right about now. That was pretty weak. <laughs> can't start a wave. I can't get an amen. <laughs> Killing me. Thank you. <laughs> Have you ever experienced God's provision, God's protection? God's faithfulness, God's love in your life. Do you have some sort of a uh, system, habit, routine, something where that when God is good, when you're experiencing the favor of the Lord, you jot that down, you enter it into your phone, you, you put it into the cloud, you put it on a Word document, I don't know what you do, but you have some way of recording the goodness of God so that there's a time in the future, when that time in the future comes where you feel overwhelmed and that riptide of life has swept you away, you have something to look to. You have, you have a glass you can break and pull something out in case of an emergency to remember the goodness of God in a time when it's very dark and very overwhelming. We need to reject the lie that we're ever too overwhelmed to cry out to God. We need to remember God's goodness and faithfulness. And finally, look at what David does in verses 6 and following. We need to resolve to praise God because you have assurance of his favor forever. And that's not because of you, that's because of Christ. Look at verse 6. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. True story, not terribly certain what exactly David is talking about there. Um, David sometimes prays for himself in the third person, but we see that throughout the Psalms. He could be saying, Lord, prolong my days, prolong, uh, pr prolong my, my years, prolong the, the, the opportunities that I have to serve you. May I be pleasing to you. I would like to think another option, which I think is viable, um, is that David is actually looking way down the line and that David realizes that he is in the line of something greater than himself. 
So when he says, prolong the life of the king, may his years endure to all generations, he can't really be praying about himself because he's not going to endure to all generations, but there's someone coming in David's line who would endure to all generations, and that's King Jesus. And when he says, may he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. That could be something else that he's crying out to God for. Looking down the line, actually looking down the messianic line saying, oh Lord, do this, do this for yourself. Prolong the life of the king. But in verse 8, he says, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. You see, because of Christ, because of his finished work on the cross for us, his victory over the grave, and his being seated at the right hand of God, we can resolve to sing praises no matter what. Because no matter what is going on, no matter what has swept us out to sea, we still have been placed on the rock that is higher than us. Amen? We still have been placed on the rock that is higher than us. That rock is Jesus Christ. We still have received God's goodness and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. I want to point out something to you. If you would turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises, look at verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Well, some of us utter amen to God for his glory. The Corinthians. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Happy Father's Day. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us. And has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God keeps his promises all the time. All the time. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ himself. Do you understand that? All the, listen to you now. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ himself. They are all the promises of blessing, of peace, of joy, of faithfulness, of fellowship, of strength, of hope of eternal life. They all come true in Christ. They're all made possible by his person and his work. That's what it means when you look at verse 20 and it says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Because of Christ, we know God fulfills his promises. There's not a single promise God has ever made that wasn't completely fulfilled in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's being called to our attention here. It's in him that we're established. The rock that is higher than we are. God, the Holy Spirit, enables us to scale the rock. And having done that, places us on the rock and we're grounded in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his Glory. Amen is an affirmation of truth about a statement. It's an affirmation of the truthfulness of something that was just said. 
Paul drove home the point of this argument by reminding the Corinthians that it's through him that we say our amen to the glory of God through us. And friends, this is a glorious promise and a glorious truth that it would be so much fun to unpack if we had the time. But what you need to know is that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. You have everything you could ever need, every answer to every prayer, everything that you could need when you're out swept away and you don't know what to do and you're paddling and paddling and paddling. You have Jesus Christ, not far away, but right here, so that if you just remove yourself from your own efforts and you just take yourself out of that rip current, the very waves that pulled you out can actually take you right back in as you swim back and are carried back by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But here's the thing. That promise says nothing to you. Nothing. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You have to understand, if you're not a Christian, you... You're kind of just checking Jesus out, kind of kicking the tires. I'm, I'm glad you are. But I would be remiss as a pastor, as a preacher, as a Christian to let you think that this promise is, is yours right now. Because, friend, it really is not. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, we're, we're established in him. Uh, that's, he's our all in all. That's the only person we have to look to for the promises of God to be fulfilled. That's it. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've not been firmly established and grounded in him, this promise just doesn't apply to you. But the good news is it's there for the taking. It may not apply to you right now. But instead of paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling and and swimming and using your own efforts to try to get yourself to where you need to be and hoping that your good outweighs your bad and whatever it is, just trying your best or thinking that you just turn into worm food when you die. Friends, there is help and safety, not here, not in the midst of the trial, not in the midst of being lost, but right on either side. You can cry out to God and you can be saved today. You can cry out to God and say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners just like me. I'm going to put all my trust in what you did on the cross to get me to the safety of heaven. And that promise is yours. Or you can choose to... But you're going to die. You're going to die. And you can only paddle for so long. Why not instead of working or trusting in self or hoping that it works out in the end, why not take just a little swim this way into surety? Not certainty in yourself. Not in any one person except the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's in him that we're established. Have you been established in Christ? Have you been established in Christ? 
It's not saying, are you perfect like Jesus? If you were perfect like Jesus, you wouldn't need Jesus. But have you been established in Christ? Looked out to God and said, I need you. Save me. Because if that's you, then that promise of all of God's promises being fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ is yours today. And if you haven't been, you can be. You can be. And at that time, you'll have the seal and the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee Changing the way you face times of overwhelming trouble because you know that your greatest problem has been taken care of. You know that God does care for his children. And even in times of trouble, you're not just going to skip your way through life acting like there is no trouble. But you have a sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ that helps you weather the storm. You have a way to get back to shore when you've been swept out to sea. And it's not on your own merits. It's not by your own efforts. It's just by stepping out and riding him back. Because we serve a great and mighty God. Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for your word. Thankful for the examples that we have before us. Knowing that when we are overwhelmed, uh, you are not thankful for the love that you show us, thankful that no matter how far we are swept, no matter why we are swept, you are near. You're never far from us. Lord, help us reject that lie. You're never far from us. We're never far from you. You're with us at all times. You're always right there, always able to listen, always able to help, and always for your people. Lord, when we're overwhelmed, help us not buy into lies, but to reach out to truth. When we're overwhelmed, help us to remember your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, nurse our faith, help our faith, help our unbelief. And Lord, may we resolve to praise you and give you glory all of our days, because no matter what we are facing, you are mighty to save, you are stronger you are better, and you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.